Margaret Bowden is Research Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of Sussex, and in February 2004, I went down to interview her at her house in Brighton. She is the author of numerous books, including The Creative Mind, which was first published in 1990. A second edition came out just prior to our interview. In our discussion, we focused on three things. First, her definition of creativity. Secondly, her responses to the three objections that David Novitz had raised to her account in the first edition of her book. And thirdly, her four so-called Lovelace questions concerning the relationship between computers and creativity. I began by asking her, though, about why she'd brought out a new edition of her book and what developments there had been over the last 14 years. Well, in terms of the computer models of creativity, mm. there have been some very interesting developments. There have been a lot of very interesting new programmes, and I've talked about those in an extra chapter at the end, and I've related them to the theory that's in the rest of the book and so on and so forth. So that's one thing that's new. The other thing that's new is it became quite clear to me, given the comments and feedback mm. that I got you know, from the first edition, that I hadn't been sufficiently clear in my definition of creativity. A lot of people thought that I was saying there was only one thing which counted to creativity, whereas in fact I was saying that there were three. Yeah. So there's what I call combinational creativity, what I call exploratory creativity, and what I call transformational creativity, and they are all perfectly respectable forms of creativity, but they are different. Yes, I think that comes out clearly. In the new edition, there's a prologue, where you set out the different conceptions of creativity, and then the epilogue where you indicate the extra computer programs that there are. So maybe we could look at the issue of the definition of creativity first before coming to the central core of your work, which is the role of computational psychology in helping us to understand creativity. Now, it seems to me that most people define creativity in terms of three things. Firstly, originality. Secondly, value. And then there's a sort of something else, a, a je ne sais quoi, which different people have filled in in different kinds of ways. Now, most people would agree that to be creative, you have to produce something that's original. So it's new, novel in some sense, but you distinguish two senses of that, which we'll come to in a minute. And secondly, that it has to have some kind of value, though that's much debated. And the third one, which you mentioned is important, uh, is the condition of being surprising. In, in the new edition of your book, you define creativity as the ability to come up with ideas or artefacts that are new, surprising and valuable. So maybe we could just look at each of those in turn, starting first with the idea of novelty. Now, you distinguish two notions of novelty. Is that correct? I distinguish between what I call psychological creativity and historical creativity, yeah. or psychological novelty and historical novelty. And what I mean by psychological novelty is when somebody comes up with an idea which they haven't had before, and it doesn't matter how many times and how many other people have had that idea before. If it's new to the person concerned, then it's what I call P-creative. Okay? Psychologically creative. Yes. That's right. Psychologically creative or personally creative. Now, H-creativity is different. H stands for historical. And if an idea is H-creative, that means that as far as we know, at least, as far as we've got the evidence, it's the first time that anybody in the history of the human species has come up with it. But clearly, historical creativity is a special case of psychological creativity. So, in that sense, psychological creativity is more fundamental. 
And also, if what you're interested in, and a large part of what I am interested in, is explaining creativity, you know, how it's possible, that's a psychological question. And whether or not the idea is also historically creative is very much secondary to that. Right. Can we move on then to the issue of surprisingness? Because the creative idea has not only been new, but also surprising. Now, here you distinguish three notions of surprisingness. Well, let's put this way. First of all, I wouldn't want to say that surprisingness was a condition. I don't think of it like that. And I would be perfectly happy, actually, to drop the notion of surprisingness from my definition. The reason oh. I've put it in is that it maps on to the three different explanations of creativity that I give. You see, you might say, look, I've already got novelty in there, right? An idea which is creative has got to be new. Yeah. Okay. So, well, novelty is surprising. I mean, so you might say surprising is tacitly in there. But nonetheless, there are three quite different species of surprise, I think, which we can recognize intuitively. And if I distinguish between those first, you know, at mm -hmm. the intuitive level, then I can use them to feed in to the underlying explanation and show that there are these three different forms of creativity. And so the three different sorts of surprise are, on the one hand, what I call a statistical surprise, where, you know, something wasn't very likely, you didn't expect it. And what that actually is going to map onto is combinational creativity. And what combinational creativity is, is coming up with a creative idea by making a novel combination of familiar ideas. One of the examples I use in the book is Macbeth at one point when he's murdered Banquo and his conscience is troubling him so much, you know, he just cannot sleep. He's desperate to sleep. And he says at one point, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. So he's speaking about sleep as though it's an old woman sitting in the corner with a pair of knitting needles mending a jumper. Now, the notion of sleep is utterly familiar. What could be more familiar? The notion of somebody knitting is utterly familiar. What could be more familiar? But the notion of putting the two together and saying that sleep is doing knitting is an extraordinary right. thing to say, but of course absolutely apt. Because what he's saying is, look, sleep cures us. Rest cures us of anxiety, of trouble, of worry. It makes us feel better. I, Macbeth, am absolutely desperate for it. And that, of course, is what somebody is doing who's knitting up a raveled sleeve. Right. Okay. So that's the first type of mm. surprisingness, unexpected, and it connects with this combinational conception of creativity. Yes. And the second type of surprise is where something happens which you hadn't expected or the idea comes up either in your own mind or somebody else's and you hadn't expected it. But once it's there, you can see that in a certain sense you might have expected it or that it was always possible. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples I use for that is going out in the car for a drive at the weekend into the countryside. And you go along the motorway or the A roads, you know, which you're familiar with. But you go off down a little tiny lane. 
that you've never been down before. And you, you go around this lane and you find all sorts of little turnings and maybe little villages that you hadn't known were there. And, and eventually, perhaps, you know, you turn around, you get back onto the motorway. Now, all of that was totally unexpected. You didn't know that those things were there, but there was nothing impossible about it. It's just that you were not aware of the potential of this space. Now, in that case, of course, it's a literal geographical space. Mm. But in the case of creativity, an example would be painting a picture or composing a piece of music or thinking up a chemical molecule of a type which is perfectly familiar. You know, the general type is perfectly familiar, but that particular picture hasn't been painted before. That particular molecule hasn't been thought of before. Now, central to this second conception is the idea of a conceptual space, which I suppose one can see as a kind of generalisation of the idea of geographical space. The conceptual space is something that can be explored and can yield up its possibilities. Now, how exactly would you define a conceptual space? Occasion also use the word generative system. And in a sense, this is the key to your work, because this is where one can bring in computational psychology, isn't it? Well, one can bring in computational psychology right from the start. I mean, combinational creativity, when Shakespeare comes up with that image of sleep and knitting, or sleep as a knitter, if you like. And the question is, how is that possible? So a whole chapter of my book, as an entire chapter about a sort of approach to computational psychology using so-called neural networks, where the questions are, you know, how is it possible for those sorts of associations to happen? So I certainly wouldn't say that you need to be talking about conceptual spaces in order to profit from computational psychology, not at all. But yes, you can profit from computational psychology of a different type in talking about conceptual spaces. And yes, you put your finger on it absolutely, Mike, because it's the notion of a generative system. And the notion of a generative system is just the notion that you have a finite set of rules for making changes of some sort. And the potential of those rules, I mean, they're rich enough so that you can get lots of different things out of these rules I mean, a very, very simple example would be noughts and crosses. You know, the rules of noughts and crosses are a generative system. They tell you what you can do and how you can do it and so forth, and they tell you when the game's over. But that is a very boring one because there are so few things you can do. Now, chess is a different matter because chess is also a generative system and there's only a very small number of rules. And yet the number of possible chess games, although it's a finite number... Mm. It's astronomically large. I mean, for all practical purposes, it's infinitely large. And so, you know, you will never be able to play or think about or imagine all the possible chess games, which is partly what makes it interesting. OK, maybe we could move to the third notion of surprising and corresponding to that, the third conception of creativity, which is the transformational conception. Transformational creativity involves transforming conceptual space changing it in some way now that you seem to suggest certainly in the first edition of your book that's the more radical form of creativity you even call it genuine creativity at one point well i certainly think it's the most interesting and i think it's the one which gives you the greatest surprise and the way in which i describe the surprise that you get in those sorts of cases is where something happens which you hadn't expected and which even after it's happened strikes you as impossible 
or certainly strikes you as something which you would never have dreamed was possible. But of course it hasn't come out of nowhere. It's come from the conceptual space that was there before, but by changing the dimensions of that space or changing the rules, whichever way you want to put it, in a certain way, which can be done superficially or it can be done much more fundamentally, to give you something which you just couldn't have had before. So one example which you, you mentioned in your book is the move from tonal to atonal music. That's an example where we change, we transform, in this case, the musical space, the generative system of music, in, in such a radical way that an entirely new form of music emerges. So Schoenberg, then, is someone who's radically creative in this transformational sense, whereas Bach, perhaps, or Mozart, is someone whose creativity is a matter of exploring the particular generative system of music. Schoenberg comes along and radically transforms things. He radically transforms things, and I wouldn't want to say it was an entirely new form of music, because the point is he's transformed what was there already. And if you look at the history of Western music, you can see that people have been making these transformations over about two centuries, and you can see that the Romantic composers, I mean, people like Brahms, for example, were doing things which Bach, for instance, would never have done, and which are actually respecting the convention of the home key much less closely than Bach did or Mozart did. And you can just see that, with hindsight, of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty vision, but you can see that it was virtually inevitable that somebody mm. at some point was going to come along and say, well, look, let's just drop this convention about the home key. And that makes a very different sort of music, but not an entirely different sort of music, because, for example, one of the things that stays the same is, and let's assume we're talking about a piano, because it's easy to think about, the notes remain the same. You've still got the same black and white notes that you're picking from, if you're Schoenberg. It's just that you're saying, instead of picking just eight of them, we're allowed to use all 12. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.